They've been through a lot more than they were expecting. And as we finish the Gospel of John in the next couple of weeks, you can turn to John 21, the last chapter in the book. It's not too hard to find. They had been through a lot with him. And they've been through a lot of emotional turmoil as they had literally seen the one, their Messiah, crucified, suffering as the curse, hanging on a tree. They still didn't have a full understanding, but the excitement and the rejoicing that we've experienced recently with Easter Sunday and all the blessings the Lord gave us and looking at that passage, the wonderment as they viewed the risen Lord in their midst and how they turned from fear to belief. We saw Thomas last week. Again, Thomas gets a bad rap a lot of times. Uh, as doubting Thomas in actuality, um, he just had the expectation that the rest of the disciples had. They'd seen Jesus. He hadn't yet. And when Jesus appeared to him, that wonderful testimony, one of the strongest testimonies from any disciple throughout Jesus' ministry, my Lord, I will serve you as my Lord and my God. I will submit to you as God, as deity, that We've come full circle. As Thomas gives that explanation of Jesus as God, we were told that in the very first chapter, which we called the prologue. John talked about the word made flesh, the word that is God, and we've come full circle. And yet we still are going to see today that the disciples still don't quite understand. They still have some misgivings. They still are wrestling with this whole idea of a risen Savior. They saw him hanging on the tree. They saw him tortured. This was beyond their expectations. They never had an expectation of their Savior, of the Messiah, suffering and dying on the cross. That was never in their plan or their picture. And so they're still struggling with this. And yet God, Jesus, has called them to do specific things. They're going to go ahead and do that today. And we're going to see how this all comes together. There's still some business that Jesus has to take care um, of with Peter as well. And we're going to see part of that today and on into the next week. But as we get into this chapter, it's a pretty simple, straightforward narrative. And yet there's a number of things and a number of interpretations that um, could have the potential to distract us. And so I want to make sure that we go through this looking at the context of Scripture, and even some things that I've believed in, in interpretations that I've had in the past, that I will let you tell you that as I've studied this, I haven't entirely changed them, but I think the Lord has given me further recognition about what's actually going on here, and I want us to go to the distractions and really understand what Jesus is doing and what he's asking of his disciples and what he'll be asking of us as well as we look at this passage. Because as Thomas' proclamation of Jesus as Lord and God, and, and God, the gospel narrative, this gospel narrative written by John has come full circle. So if that's the case, then why, what's even the need for chapter 21? And some scholars have debated that. Well, obviously, the Holy Spirit's included that in Scripture here. But it's going to wrap up, like I just said before, some unfinished business between Jesus and Peter. And we could Kind of think of this as an epilogue to the end of the narrative. The gospel begun with a prologue, the first chapter now begins with a rather type of epilogue. 
And Jesus is going to appear to his disciples in Galilee. I don't know if you've ever missed that before. But they're actually back in Galilee for this part of the story, the narrative. And he has... ...to show us what that is. Let's read then. We'll skip ahead to verse 15 through verse 17. Pray and get into this passage in more detail. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my feet. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Father, as we see the very beautiful, poignant, meaningful discussion, public between Jesus and Peter in front of the others. We know that Jesus or, or that Peter is confronted with the reality of his love for Christ. Jesus points him to the need to show his love in action and in ministry. Father, even as we see this this morning, let us not just be so focused on Peter that we don't also examine our own hearts. As we hear these words, let us also hear the question to each of us, do we love the Savior? Do we love him? Is it showing in sacrificial service to for others? Are we showing that love of Christ to others? Are we putting into action the love that we speak of? And let us, as we read this passage, be motivated to move beyond words and to serve you faithfully. You give us the power to do that, and we're grateful. Help us to do that well, to serve you faithfully. This we ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus asked the question, do you love me? And he is the risen Lord, and we're going to see, first of all, the risen Lord provides his followers with sustenance. He is still going to be taking care of his disciples and his followers in a beautiful picture here. Jesus, first of all, how does he do this? Well, we what in context here may not be apparent, but we're told in Mark 16 that Jesus called his disciples back to Galilee. Why do we find the disciples in chapter 21 back in Galilee? Sea of Tiberias, another word for the Sea of, of Galilee, they're in the Galilean region. Why, why would they return there after having seen Jesus appear? They're in Jerusalem and having experienced that. Well, here's a practical reason. The Passover week is over. And what Galileans do from Galilee, they return home. So they were returning home. They were back home. But there's another aspect of this we need to keep in mind. In Mark chapter 16, you don't have to turn there. But Mark relates to us when Jesus had appeared to the disciples, he said to them, do not be alarmed. I'm sorry, the angel was at the tomb. Those that were there, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. 
He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And so it seems there was an understanding with the disciples that they would meet Jesus again in Galilee. But we're not told, and I don't think we should expect Jesus to have given them an itinerary. This is the date you'll meet me in Galilee. This is the time, and this is what we're going to do, and this is my plan for you in the future. No, they just knew that he would appear again in Galilee. So while they waited there, they still had to take care of the practical responsibilities of life. They had to take care of their families. And how do fishermen do that? By fishing. Now, the one interpretation that may be a little distracting here, and I'll just kind of clear the way, I don't believe, because really in the context here, there's nothing that says that Peter is frustrated and so disappointed that he's now decided, I'm going to quit, leave off serving Jesus, and I'm just going to go, I'm going back to my old lifestyle. There's a reason people... um, interpret it that way, and we'll see later on what that is. I don't believe that's what's going on here, because there's no real indication. You almost have to read verse 3. You have to read that emphasis in there, something like Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I'm done with waiting for Jesus. I'm going back to my old life. Well, he doesn't actually say that, does he? And let's just keep it real simple. Fishermen, When they're waiting, they've got to take care of their families and the practical aspects of life. And they usually fished at night so that they could sell the fish fresh in the morning. All this makes sense. The only problem is, as they decide to go out to fish, they're not very successful. So let's look at, again, at John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter. Thomas called the twin. Again, John reminds us he's kind of fixated on that. Thomas means twin. Maybe he had another twin. We don't know for sure. Nathaniel of Cana, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, one of those writing this book, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got in the boat. Now, the only problem is, But that night, they caught nothing. So, Jesus made it clear they're supposed to be back in Galilee. They don't know when he's going to appear next. And so they do, they carry out their responsibilities. And for those of you that have gone out and tend to his disciples to meet their needs, when he does appear to them here at daybreak, he's going to gently and lovingly meet their needs. Let's look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Well, how could that be? Well, remember, this is daybreak, and it's hard if you've ever um, you know, been up that early and the shadows are still forming to see if you're if they were on the lake to see someone that was on the shore. This, I don't think at this point we should think of this as they're still having trouble recognizing Jesus when he's with them, there is a difference about his appearance, but at this point, very practically, they can't see for sure who's on the shore. They don't recognize him. It's not that they're dull of thinking, really, at this point. But then he calls to them. And this should have some 
reminiscent of what Floyd just read in their initial contact with him, right? Jesus said to them, children, in a very kind, gentle way, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And so he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, why are they willing to even do that? If you have been fishing for a long time and you see someone that has, you know, has just come along and trying to give you advice, you might think twice about taking that advice. Well, what do you know? Well, again, these, it's obvious the disciples don't know that this is Jesus yet. And maybe they should have thought back and there should have been as they thought back to Jesus calling them. Maybe they were a little bit dull at this point. They should have remembered the same sort of thing is happening again. But they don't know who it is. And probably what they're thinking at this point, well, this is just some friendly advice from a passerby. Who, you know, when, when you're fishing and you have someone that's, that's had some success and they come up to you and say, hey, I see you haven't fished yet. Why don't you try this? Have you tried this more? Have you, have you tried on fishing over in this area? And you thank them for that. Probably what the disciples were thinking here. Okay, why not? What, what have we got to lose? Let's go ahead and try it. And they throw them, they cast it out on the right side. This man sounds confident that they're going to catch some. And of course, the tremendous results here were certainly unexpected by them, for they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And John, the ever-perceptive disciple, is then the first one to recognize. He's thinking back to the first time, assuredly, when Jesus called them and said, guys, it's the Lord. That's Jesus. He's here. He's appeared. And Peter doesn't want to be outdone. John's the ever-perceptive disciple. He figures it out first. But Peter's the ever-reactive disciple, not to be outdone by John. And see, it's described here as that he binds himself or girds himself up in such a way that he can get out into the water and still get to shore. I think really is, is the picture here. Let's look at it. Uh, <clears throat> verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Well, either Peter was stripped down to just enough, just enough clothing to be able to work and to be able to do what he needed to do. And he threw his, his coat on um, to kind of cover himself and then jump in the water. But really, that would kind of weigh him down. I think the way the wording here is, is that he grabbed, he had his outer garment probably on, and he was, as he was doing the fishing, and he bound it to himself in such a way that he could step out of the boat and go to shore quickly without losing that garment. And he jumps in, and all excited, right? The exuberant rush to meet Jesus. John figured it out first, but he's not going to beat me to the, to the Savior. I'll get there first. And what does he do with the other guys? He leaves them all the grunt work to get the fish back in. Peter's so excited at this point that he leaves everyone else to bring the fish back. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. That must have required some work. For they were not far from land but about 100 yards off. And I think even in this, before we go further with what Jesus did next, that um, we still, even in following Jesus' call, these disciples were ready to meet Jesus again, 
but they still were performing the responsibilities, the practicalities of life continued. And Jesus has an expectation. I don't think this is too off, off base on this, an application. That Jesus, even when he calls us, still expects us to follow after the practicalities, the daily responsibilities, while we rely on him to meet our daily needs. The disciples were going back, not because they were disillusioned and they were leaving Jesus, but until Jesus showed up, they had responsibilities to their family, and they were going to do that. But at the same time, Jesus reminds them, but I need to be part of the picture. I will be the one that supplies your daily needs and helps you, and you need my presence. And folks, we need the presence of Jesus to help us fulfill even the daily things that he gives us to do. We shouldn't be lax about our responsibilities. We should, in the midst of serving Jesus, um, be faithful to providing for our families and um, following after the things that God has given us to do. But even in those basic things, depending on him, Jesus provided for his disciples. We need to depend upon Jesus for our daily needs. Always serve him faithfully. And I think we have that here. But certainly, Peter's excitement, the unexpected catch of fish, is all a part of the energy of the moment here. So the risen Lord provided his followers with sustenance. The risen Lord, Jesus, now prepares his followers for service. I think we'll see that in the next few verses. So they finally get to land. They got out of land, and they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. The rest of the disciples reach Jesus. Peter certainly got there first. The rest of them get there. Jesus already has a fire prepared with fish for them to eat. And yet, what does he say? He says to them, bring some. Jesus just provide all of the fish. These are some things that are here in the context that many times we don't think about. But why? He could have easily done that. If, you know, if they've done all this work, he's provided the fish. He's already provided some there, cooked, ready to go. I think really, honestly, in the context here, he's, prov he's provided all of the fish. But he's allowing them to come along and to join in and participate in the service for others. And so Jesus calls them, hey, you help. I'm, I provided everything that you need, but you guys have a part in this too. Cooperate and work together in this provision. And now that Simon Peter hears that, when Peter hears that, now he's ready. He may have ignored the needs of the men before, but now he's ready to jump into action again. And it also shows us here that Peter was a pretty strong guy. He must have been. Verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard. He goes back aboard into the ship, and he hauls the whole net ashore full of large fish. That was no small matter. Because there was 153 of them. Somebody had to have counted them. In the midst of this, somebody, I don't know who it was. It was Nathaniel. I don't know who was the more orderly of the disciples. We're not told they had an account. I mean, you know, Judas wasn't there anymore. He was the, the holder of the money. But one of these guys were so impressed that they actually counted and found out it was 153 large fish. And Peter drags them all on land. And in so doing, he is participating in um, Jesus' provision for them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. The first time Jesus called them, the net was torn. This time it's not. I don't know that there's any 
real significance to that, except that John is noting all of these details. Maybe, in fact, this is a subtle picture that the men will have success as they go out to be fishers of men. We're not told. I want to be careful with that. But all of this is a sign of Jesus' provision in a miraculous way. Don't miss that. And yet the disciples and Peter, the disciples there and ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. But isn't it interesting that John even includes this inner reaction? There still seems to be some hesitancy, doesn't there? Because he has to actually invite them. Come on, guys. Breakfast is here. Peter's got the rest of the fish. We're ready to go. You know, uh, first person to jump in and everybody's kind of, and then, and then the little ones, you know, you're always trying to hold them back. No, let somebody else go and finally, okay, go ahead and start the line. I don't know what the hesitancy was here, but there does seem to be, as they, they're noting Jesus in front of them, still some sort of inner struggle over comprehending the fact that the risen Savior, Jesus, is right there in front of them, um, providing for them, calling to them to work alongside of him. One um, commentator said this. I thought this was helpful, this quote. The disciples have been granted the strongest possible reasons for believing in Jesus' resurrection, and indeed did so. We're told that in the passage. They knew it was the Lord. But whether they could see Jesus had appeared with new powers, you know, passing person types of things, that didn't happen before his resurrection, or because they were still grappling with the strangeness of a crucified and resurrected Messiah, or because despite the irrefutable power of the evidence presented to them, resurrection still seemed strange. Whatever, they felt considerable unease. Yet they suppressed their question because they knew the one before them could only be Jesus. And these men had trusted, had believed, even though they didn't understand everything. Folks, Jesus today calls us to believe, even if we don't understand every aspect of how he's working in our lives. Will we ever understand fully the idea that the, the, the fact that Jesus is the son of God, he was fully man? but fully God and how he has, how he interacts with the Trinity, father, the father to the son and the son to the spirit. We'll never be able to fully understand. Sometimes as we contemplate who Jesus is, it may seem a little strange to us still. And like these disciples, we may hesitate, but yet because of our faith in Jesus, we know that it's all going to turn out in the end. And here he is providing for them. And so all of this is going through their minds together. And then John gives us this information. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the third time that Jesus had appeared to a larger group of his disciples. All of the disciples here, not sure. We're not told that for sure. But a good And Jesus is providing for them still but allowing them to participate in this provision. And now, secondly, we get to this, um, again, uh, some, I think sometimes misunderstood, and there's a wide uh, number of interpretations of this passage as we look at these, really just these three verses, 15 through 6, 17. But Jesus is going to prepare Peter to shepherd 
along with him in this. And now Jesus, we're going to see here, still has business to attend to with Peter in this public setting. He's going to prepare him. He's going to restore him for ministry. Did he give Peter any sort of indication that he was going to do this before the disciples as he met with them privately, as we found in the scripture tells us? We really don't know. We don't know what Jesus said to Peter in his initial appearance back in Jerusalem to him. Maybe he prepared him, but it doesn't seem like Simon Peter was fully prepared for what Jesus was going to do here. Folks, the context in this is, is key. <laughs> Peter had had recent grievous failings, right? I mean, he had made a lot of bold statements about his love for Christ. And Jesus is going to remind him of those. Remember, Peter, I'll love you more than all of these. And Peter had to have a moment, a public moment with he and Jesus to be restored to ministry in front of these others that he had so rashly and boldly made these statements. Peter denied Jesus three times, right? And publicly, I'm sure all the disciples knew about Peter's denial. Maybe they were still frustrated with him over. Jesus is going to call Peter to answer him three times. Peter declared in front of the others that he loved Jesus more than them all. And now he must give an account of his love after his public denial. But there is one aspect here, actually numerous ones, but one in particular. We'll look at this a little bit more. We won't go to cover everything in the, this week, but I want us to understand what's going on here. And you have probably heard, I expect most of you have heard an interpretation that I, in the past, um, have considered accurate, and I still do. But I think we just have to be careful with it here, and I'll give you the reason why. The different Greek words that are used in this presentation between Jesus and Peter, and probably most of you have heard this. Let's look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And does anybody know? Have you heard no. word is that Jesus uses there? Agape, agapao, use the verb uh, tense there. And then what does Peter say? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But what is the Greek word there? Phileo, okay, using the verb tenses here. And Jesus does that a second time, the same thing. He uses agapeo, or the word for agape, the verb form for agape, and Peter uses phileo. And in the final presentation, Jesus uses the word phileo, which um, has been described as uh, representing brotherly love. And then Peter uses the same word again. Now, why, why would that be important? Well, in the interpretation that, I, that I've heard in the past and that many of you, I'm sure, have as well, that Jesus using that word the agape form of, of, um, of the verb indicates that he's calling Peter to a greater love. And Peter can only respond with an affirmation of a lesser love. That's phileo. Have you heard that before? And then finally, in the third, Jesus, that capitulates, but he kind of uses that word. Okay, Peter, let's just talk about phileo. Do you even phileo me? Do you even love me with a brotherly love? And Peter is grieved and says, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Right? Um, is he questioning even Peter's lesser love? 
Well, there's a couple warnings I want to give here. And I think there is some legitimacy to that interpretation, but we need to have some understanding on some things here. And that is, um, if there is meant to be a recognizable difference, why does there's really only one translation I'm aware of of Scripture that even marks that in any way, and that's the NIV. The NIV has Jesus saying, do you truly love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And all the other translations that I'm aware of, from the King James to the ESV, they just all use the word love. If it was really important to make a distinction there, why wouldn't the translations make that distinction? Why wouldn't there be a recognizable difference? And also, you may have heard this, that agapao always refers to God's love. And that is true for the most part. And that phileo always refers to a human love, a brotherly love, an affection. And that there's no ever correlation or there's no interchangeability between the two. And that's actually not accurate. Let me give you two examples here. Again, we're, I just want you to have a full understanding of what's going on here. And sometimes some interpretations that we've heard in the past that I've held to, just want to make sure we're clear in our thinking. Let me just give you quickly, you don't have to turn there, but John chapter 5, 20, we've already mentioned, seen this verse before. The Father to the Son. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Do you know what the word love there is between the Father and the Son? Check the Greek, it's love. And then this may be more surprising. 2 Timothy 4.10, and we all probably remember this verse, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Do you remember Jesus or, or Paul mentioned that? And you think, oh, how could Demas do that? serving him so faithfully for so many years? It says, in love with this present world, and the love, the word there is agapao, agape. There are times where these words are used interchangeably. But what do we do with that? Well, let me just first of all be clear. It is true for the most part that agapao, agape, is used almost exclusively, most of the time, for God's love and for his unique sacrificing, the full highest committed love that human love could never attain to. In a general sense, it is true that agape is that love. Maybe once in a while, the writers interchange, but for the most part, it does represent that. And phileo, on the other hand, is mostly used for the highest love that humanity can attain to apart from God's love, agape love. But sometimes it gets short thrift. And the word phileo is actually a very powerful word for a love that is very significant. It's used... For the highest love, I'll put it this way, that humanity can attain to apart from God's love, apart from um, agape love. And it's used for a deeply affectionate love, even reflecting sometimes intimacy in relationships. It reflects familial love in warm friendship with a strong emotional attachment. We say in our modern vernacular, it's no slouch. This word is powerful. It's not a second, it's not in one sense just a much lesser word where Peter's saying, Oh, yeah, I, I love you, Lord. No, it, this is a powerful estimation of emotion. It, it, there's a lot of emotion behind this. Yes, Lord, you know, I love you. 
but is still not reaching the self-sacrificing, committed love that Jesus is referring to. And we'll see how Jesus ties that in in just a minute. Let me just add a couple other things to this so we're all on the same track. Um, Are there other subtle word changes in the same passage? So if we're going to make too much of those two words for love, did you also know that in the passage, if there's two different words for feed the sheep and tend the sheep, there's also different words for lamb and sheep. And in Peter's last response, the word no, there's two different words used for the word no in Peter's, Peter's final response. So we have to be careful making too much of word changes because it's all throughout that passage. And here's probably the thing that concerns me the most before I get to the interpretation of why Jesus is talking to Peter in this way and it's important. But here's my concern. I never want someone to have to feel like as they come to Scripture that if they don't know Greek, they don't know the word Greek word phileo or agape, that somehow they're going to miss that they don't have an accurate enough translation that somehow they're going to miss some very important hidden message in the Scripture. If, if, if I come to my King James or my ESV or NASB, all these are, are translations that we use here, and I see the word love, then by the context, I ought to be able to figure out, these are accurate translations, what's going on here without even needing to know the difference between agape or phileo. And there's a lot of people that don't know that difference. So you see my concern here with that? So I don't want to make too much of that. So then with all that information, let's tie this up and make this very practical. What's going on here? Well, Peter is reinstating, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is reinstating Peter for a central role in ministry. And he's using the same pattern of denial that Peter had Christ. And he's emphasizing that the way to truly demonstrate Peter's love for Jesus is with his actions, is by shepherding others faithfully. With this in mind, let's go back to this and we'll quickly tie all this together. Jesus said to Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you have a sacrificial, committed love? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this is a very strong, emotional love. Lord, I've shown you. Look at my words. Look at my actions. I've told you many times I love you more than everyone else. Um, I, I ran to you this morning. Remember, I, I ran and, and even sliced off the servant's ear in front of you. And, of course, you healed it. And told me I shouldn't have done that. But don't you see all these emotional reactions How can you ask if I love you or not? Can't you see? And Jesus said a second time, verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, are you willing to have sacrificial, faithful, committed love to me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I think there was emotion in that. I don't think it was any sort of, Lord, you know that I love you. No, I think he was sincere, and and it was meaningful to him. But there's something on the third statement of this that Jesus makes that's important. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of God, do you love me? Do you even have that emotional, um, exuberant, human love for me? And I think at that moment that, that 
he's using the same thing that I did. I denied him three times. He's asking me three times. And that is why he's grieved. That makes sense more in the context. So we can see that without ever having to know what the Greek is, even in the background. It's, it's clear here. And so Peter responds in this way, Lord, you know everything. You know that I fleto, that I love you. And I think what he's saying here is that, okay, Lord, I know I denied you three times. I, I get the point. You're asking me three times because I denied you three times. Yeah, I know I did. But, yes, I still have deep love and affection for you. Jesus, you know that. And here is an important thing we miss many times. Peter, at this point, in his pronunciation of this, is his proclamation, excuse me, is just as important, I think, as Thomas because he's saying, you're God. You know what's going on inside of me. You know my heart. These men don't know my heart. And remember, Jesus is at the beginning. Do you love me more than these? Don't, don't miss that as well. Jesus is saying, you made a big proclamation and statement, Peter, that you love me more than everybody else. And yet you denied me three times. And in your exuberance, it really didn't follow through on your emotional exuberance. Do you really love me more than the rest of these? And Jesus isn't saying that in any way that, that, that Peter can, has shown his love more than the others. He's not saying that, but he's saying, do you really mean what you say? And if you really mean what you say, stop using just words, Peter, and show it with your actions. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. And I think what Jesus is saying here in the end, we can understand it this way is that Peter needs to give up showing his love for God on his own terms. What are Peter's terms? Words, motions, excitement. Even here at the end, jumping into the water, trying to get, John may have figured out it was Jesus first, but I'm going to show Jesus. I'm going to jump in the water and get there first. In all of this, Jesus says, yes, you have a strong, energetic, emotional attachment to me. I can see that, Peter. But what are you going to do about it now? Go back to what Peter had just done with feeding, helping to feed the disciples. I think that's an important part of this too. Jesus is saying, just like you just helped me, Peter, in helping to feed the disciples, that's what you need to be doing. Serve me with your actions. If you really love me, obey me and feed my lambs. Show your obedience through faithful, loving ministry and leadership that I'm preparing you for, and that you're about ready to experience. That's the point of this passage, and it fits the context, and people that don't even know necessarily the Greek can get that, I think. Peter, it's time past for you to be um, showing all this emotional love without actually committing yourself to me as a leader to serve other people. It's time to serve. It's time to mature. It's time to grow up. Do we ever, after this, by the way, you even in Acts see a picture of Peter boasting or bragging or trying to get ahead of everybody else? No. Peter did learn his lesson. And Peter, in 1 Peter then, what does he do? He writes a whole part of that letter helping others, explaining to others how to shepherd because he's already been a shepherd. And God, Jesus has enabled him to be a shepherd uh, successfully. And he's able now to mentor other shepherds. 
So as we come to the end of this, folks, you might say, well, that's good for Peter, but what about for us? How do each of us in our own lives tend to show or think of our love for Jesus? Is it because we let others know that we read God's word every day verbally and that we tell others of all the things that we're doing for God or we put on um, some sort of exciting and exuberant um, or, or explanation for how much we love him, but it's mostly words? Are there a lot of actions that fit our testimony of love for Christ? It's really easy to get caught up in words and actions that may symbolize love for Christ, but we're not actually doing ministry and showing love for others. That is, I think, is the point for us that Jesus is calling us today as well. Do you, do each of us love him? We're going to show it in how effectively we're loving others. We may not be a leader, shepherd. But there are plenty of other ways that God wants us to serve each other, to serve the sheep, to go out into the community and call the lost to him. And Jesus says, if you really love me, stop just talking about it. In other words, go serve me. And not just a few times. He's calling Peter to committed service through his whole life. He calls us to that. Are we ready to commit faithful service to Jesus with our whole lives, regardless of what happens? We're going to find out next week that Jesus says, if I can put it this way, oh, by the way, Peter, at the end of your life, you're going to have to run into some things that you're not going to like. And the point is, be faithful anyway. Are we ready to be faithful, not with just words and showmanship, but actual ministry, committed, continual ministry, until Jesus returns, that is one of the best testimonies that we truly love Jesus. Father, thank you. I hope this was understandable today, or I think sometimes we get distracted by some things in this text. And, and some well-meaning people, and even in my study in the past, I've been distracted. And at the same time, Lord, I do believe that this is the, the real message that is there, that is direct, understandable for everybody. That if we're going to claim relationship with Christ, even James talks about that we must have actions, that the Holy Spirit is doing something in us, that we must be out serving you faithfully, for the leaders shepherding faithfully, everyone else serving and ministering to other people, showing your love. Father, help us to remember, even today, even this week, that one of the greatest ways we show love for Christ is showing his love to others. Help us to do that effectively. Not just to say it, but to do it. Carry out the love that we have received from him. Or we know that in the end, it's all Jesus. We know that's true. But he gives us a wonderful opportunity to take part in that. And I pray that, first of all, if there's anyone here today that has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is not a disciple, that they would do that, that they would come and talk to me or another leader here, and they would make sure that they have a relationship with Jesus, that they trust and love Jesus with faith. And that secondly, for the rest of us who have committed to you, that we would understand the entirety of that commitment 
And love and serve you faithfully by loving and serving others faithfully until Jesus returns. Help us. We need your help to do that. Enable us for that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.